Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Uh, welcome to today's meeting of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, uh, a dialogue, uh, leadership dialogue on energy, the economy, and the environment. My name is Alan Murray. I'm the deputy managing editor of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I, uh, I think most of you know that we have a very clear division at the Wall Street Journal between church and state, the editorial pages and the news pages. I come from the state, the news pages. I hope that I, I was not looking for applause. I just said I, I, I'm just hoping that that makes me qualified uh, uh, to moderate this very interesting uh, conversation tonight. We have uh, two giants in this field uh, with us tonight. Dave O'Reilly, the CEO of Chevron, is a giant in the oil industry. Uh, and we have Carl Pope, uh, the executive director of the Sierra Club, who is a giant in the environmental movement. Uh, I think both these men deserve a great deal of credit for agreeing to appear here tonight in this forum, and he probably even more credit for agreeing to share one microphone between them. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so here's how this is going to work. Each, each of these men is going to uh, make uh, brief opening comments, no more than five minutes. Uh, then we're going to spend the next uh, 20, 30 minutes or so having a conversation among the three of us. Uh, then we will open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, this is not intended to be a smackdown. Uh, I think you will find that both of these gentlemen uh, believe that we do need to reduce our dependence on carbon-based fuels, uh, where you'll find some interesting disagreements uh, likely is on the methods and the time uh, and the cost of doing that. Uh, so let's proceed, and Carl Pope, you get to go first. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here, and it's kind of interesting. This conversation, because of schedules, took slightly over a year to arrange. And when we started trying to arrange it, the headlines were dominated by the price of oil. And I noticed this morning in the New York Times that the price of oil is creeping back into the headlines. So maybe the delays were all for a purpose. Uh, I'm just going to quickly review where I think we are. The Earth has a fever. The atmosphere and climate are deteriorating. Temperatures are hotter. Glaciers and ice sheets are melting. Permafrost is collapsing. Seas are rising and acidifying. Forests are burning. These are real threats. They're measurable threats. They're dangerous. Burning coal and oil either causes or contributes to each one of these dangers. I hope we won't have to debate this part of the equation because this has all been measured. There really isn't anything left to debate. We're in trouble. And whatever the complete cause of that trouble, burning oil and gas makes it worse. So if we've got a fever and we go to the doctor, the climatologists, what do they tell us we need to do? They say we need to start cutting our emissions of carbon dioxide right now. That by 2050... Every human being on Earth will have a budget of no more than two tons of carbon dioxide a year. 
they'll be able to emit. That means that the carbon dioxide emitted by the U.S. economy has to come down by 90% from where it is today. If you do the arithmetic, this is arithmetic, this is not politics. If you do the arithmetic on two tons a day for every American, that means that we can't be burning by roughly 2030 any more coal unless its carbon is sequestered. And by roughly 2040, we have to use, stop using petroleum to move our goods. You can't get the numbers to work any other way. Now, here I suspect we will debate and disagree. Mr. O'Reilly will call for a much slower timetable. He'll say that we still need to keep using and finding oil. He'll say, look, we actually have a lot of oil. It's in the tar sands of Canada. I'm not sure he's going to mention the carcinogens that result in the drinking water from developing tar sands. The massive bird spills are the fact that producing tar sands oil emits three to five times as much CO2 as producing conventional oil. Uh, Mr. O'Reilly is also on the record as an advocate of exploring and exploiting huge areas in the rest of the world that haven't yet been developed, that have oil potential, and there are many such areas. I'll agree with him there. But he's probably not going to dwell as much as I might on the human and the environmental costs in places like Nigeria, Myanmar, Ecuador, and Louisiana that have followed our past efforts to develop and exploit oil fields when we found them. I think he and I can both agree oil is going to be more expensive. He's pointed out that the easy, cheap oil has largely been found. He's probably going to tell you that the rapid reduction I'm calling for isn't needed. He's going to tell you it isn't possible. And he may claim it would be bad news if we tried to do it. And I'm going to address these three claims first. I'm going to believe the climatologists on what we need to do. They say we need to do it fast. Can we do it fast? Let's look at transportation. That's where we use most of our oil. It's not the whole global warming problem, but it's where we use oil. If by 2030 all new cars are primarily electric, and if that electricity is low-carbon electricity, if we build compact communities and invest in transit, we should be able to eliminate most of the 20% of the oil we use to move ourselves around. We use another 10% moving freight around. We're going to have to put more shipping on electrified rail instead of trucks. We're going to have to replace diesel with natural gas. And we're going to have to replace jet fuel with cellulosic biofuels. That seems to me could be done. Is this going to be bad for us? Not when I look at our trade deficit. We might cut it by... Might cut it by $100 billion a year, might cut it by more. It's not going to be bad for our health. It's not going to be bad for the climate. It's going to generate maybe 10 million new jobs. The money we send overseas to import oil is not money that stays here and powers our economy or supports our communities. And we have some other benefits because one of the realities so far that has occurred when we try to exploit oil fields is that we do a lot of damage. 
the communities that surround the places where we produce and refine petroleum over the decades have suffered enormously for the fossil fuels that the rest of us enjoyed. That's been true in this country, where oil development devastated the wetlands that used to protect New Orleans. It's been true overseas, in places like Nigeria, in places like Ecuador, in places like Burma. Now, I don't think it has to be true. I think, in fact, companies like Chevron now know how to produce oil in a way that's environmentally and socially responsible. And I'm going to close by suggesting a possible bargain that, in theory, we might be able to agree on. I don't think we're going to be able to agree on the timetable for phasing out coal and oil. I don't think that's achievable. But I want to suggest that we might be able to agree on how we ought to produce the oil, however much it turns out to be, and for however long it turns out to be. And that would be quite simply to accept the principle that we adopted in 1980 for toxic waste in the United States. That those who were involved in producing toxic waste are responsible for the whole package. You can't blame your partners. You can't blame your contractors. You have to take full responsibility for the results of the toxic waste you produce. And I'm going to suggest that with two simple steps, we could move forward into a world in which the international oil industry took full responsibility for the consequences of producing oil. Step one, let's set up a global trust fund funded for a decade with 10% of the profits from every oil major and devote that money to restoring every community that's been damaged by oil production. Let's not argue about which oil company is responsible. Let's just have the oil industry put up the money and clean it up. And second, let's agree going forward that the rules that apply to toxic waste in the United States, that you were jointly, strictly, and severally liable for the results of your actions, should apply globally to the production of oil. Thank you. He, he's, got his, he's got a mic now. I got, my, I got my own mic. Can everyone hear me? Um, well, uh, first of all, I want to thank the Commonwealth Club for having us here and thank uh, Carl and, and obviously Alan for the introduction. Um, I began my career as an engineer about 40 years ago, and I've watched our industry and our company make tremendous advances in technology, safety, environmental performance, and innovation. I've also learned from experience that the best ideas come from collaboration and conversation, so I'm looking forward to our discussion tonight. Let me frame the discussion by saying that I believe that Chevron and the Sierra Club share many of the same goals. We both want to protect the environment. We want to advance energy efficiency and conservation. We, we support expanding renewable energy. And I think we both agree that the supply of reliable, environmentally sound, and affordable energy is critical to human and economic pro progress. However, we do disagree, I think, on how best to achieve the goals. For example, I think we differ on the extent to which renewables and efficiency can replace our fossil fuel-based economy. 
how quickly a meaningful transition take place, what specific energy policies and actions we must undertake, and what actions are needed to realistically address climate change. So where do we start our discussion? I think any substantive discussion has to start with the question of scale. Today, the global energy system is enormous. Every day, the world consumes, from all energy sources combined, the equivalent of 245 million barrels a day of oil. And over 90% of that energy comes from four sources, oil, natural gas, coal, and nuclear. And America mirrors that reliance on traditional fuels. So while we agree over time that we need cleaner, more diverse forms of energy, when you look at the data, there's really no avoiding that the sheer scale of our energy needs is far beyond the capacity of any one source or one technology. We must also consider strengthening U.S. energy security. How much do we need, and how can that demand be met with alternatives right now? Let me give you an example from oil. America's oil production has fallen by 4 million barrels a day over the last 25 years, while our demand has grown by 4 million barrels a day. Despite a focus on ethanol, which grew by 2,000% during that time, almost all of our demand growth was met by imports. So from a policy standpoint, America has been moving in the wrong direction for a long time. It is now time to develop smart policies focused on ensuring reliable, affordable, environmentally sound energy. And the challenge of scale demands that we acknowledge that conventional energy sources will remain indispensable for decades. And here, too, I think we must be realistic, because for the foreseeable future, we need to develop it all, conventional as well as unconventional energy, as well as renewables and alternatives. And ultimately, these alternatives have to be economic, sustainable, and achieve commercial scale. So how can we meet these needs while transitioning to a lower carbon energy? The transition will require a long-term commitment and a realistic grasp of the challenge. Many, including the Sierra Club, are calling for reducing emissions by 80% by 2050. I think I heard 90% here a minute ago. We both agree that we need to cut carbon emissions, but I think we must be sensible and understand that even with the best of intentions, we're only going to get part of the way there. For example, if we were to replace America's transportation system with a zero-carbon solution, that's all the cars, trucks, buses, planes, trains, and ships, with a zero-carbon solution, we would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 34%. If we were to replace the entire U.S. power generation system with a non-carbon solution, we would reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40%. So combining those two gets you a 74% reduction. So we have to ask ourselves, can we replace our entire energy system, transportation, and power in just a few short decades? Today's energy system is the product of more than 100 years of investment, and I think the transition is going to take some time. Now, I applaud the Sierra Club's leadership and their efforts to advance greater energy efficiency, which I do think should be a top priority. We have an energy solutions business that is focused on combining energy efficiency with renewable energy supplies for public and government institutions. For example, it's one of the largest installers of solar panels here in California. 
We form partnerships with leading universities to advance energy technology. One of our largest is with UC Davis, where we're doing research on biofuels and on energy efficiency. And through our partnership with Weyerhaeuser, we're actively pursuing advancements to commercialize biofuels from non-food sources. We take our responsibilities seriously in developing cleaner, renewable energy sources and technologies for the future. But as a nation, we will only be successful if we find common ground. We need to set our standards high and not create false expectations. So I hope we succeed, and I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, for the radio audience, let me say I'm Alan Murray. We're here at the Climate One discussion at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, that was Chevron CEO Dave O'Reilly, who you were just listening to. And we're also here with Carl Pope, executive director of the Sierra Club. And, and Carl, I promise you uh, we will get back to your two-point program uh, before we finish this uh, discussion. But I want to make sure first that I understand where the areas of agreement are and where the areas of disagreement are. Uh, on, the, on the point of agreement, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, has said uh, that uh, global warming is unequivocal and that it is very likely uh, the result of human factors. Um, uh, Carl, I assume you Agreed. agree with that. <laughs> Mr. O'Reilly? Agreed. In fact, one of my colleagues was on the IPCC and shared in the Nobel Peace Prize. Okay. So uh, the Nobel Conservation Prize. We are in the same place on that one. Now, another interesting convergence between the two of you is neither of you are members of the organization USCAP, the Climate Change Partnership, which includes both companies and nonprofit organizations and has probably changed the politics of climate change in the United States. And I'd like to hear each of you say why you chose not to uh, join that organization. Uh, Mr. O'Reilly, you first. Well, for, first of all, we, we did not want to be hogtied by the, the, the wide variety of, of members that are present in that, and we didn't feel that we could represent ourselves best in a group where you would get, have to get to the lowest common denominator. Identical answer. There you go. All right. I think we'll just stop now. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. I'm, I, I think I probably run out of questions where I think I can mine the agreements be between the two of you. But, but uh, uh, Mr. O'Reilly, let me ask you, because, uh, uh, Carl, you made it pretty clear that you thought we needed to get our, our transportation, uh, uh, let's see, our transportation off of carbon-based fuels by 2030. Right. Uh, our power generation off of carbon-based fuel by 2040. Unless we can sequester the carbon. Unless I don't you sequester. mind carbon if it's sequestered. And you but have, you can't sequester you have from a tailpipe. And you have endorsed an 80 or 90 percent reduction in uh, uh, greenhouse gases by 2050. 90 below today's levels, 80 below 1990, which so is what the, the scientists have told us we need to do to avoid. Uh, and Dave, you've made it clear that you don't think that's realistic. Can you tell us what a realistic timetable would look like? Well, I think we'll be lucky if we can get 20 percent, 20 or 25 percent by 2050. And, and it, it's just a matter of capital stock turnover. If you just look at, for example, the automobiles that are on the road today, which are basically ethanol, combination of gasoline and ethanol and diesel. Uh, there are 245 million vehicles in the United States. 
they, la they last for 15 to 18 years at least. And we don't have those type of cars and that type of supply available yet today. So I even with yeah. 10 or 20 years, well, 10 years in the U.S. and 20 years of, of hybrid car development, there's still only a little over a million cars in the fleet today. So it just takes an enormous length of time for transitions like that to take place. And, and I assume costly. I mean, I saw an article the other day that suggested the, the uh, Chevy Volt was going to sell for $40,000, which is more than the average uh, car buyer uh, uh, pays these days. Carl, so how do you deal with that? What is it going to cost the people in this audience? What is it going to cost consumers in general uh, to uh, get rid of all uh, oil-powered automobiles by 2030? Well, we're not going to get all the oil-powered ones off the road by 2030, and I didn't mean to imply that, but by 2030, we should only be producing ones that don't. But let me give you a, a point. I've got one of these. It makes me a Luddite for the radio audience. I'm holding up just a plain old cell phone. It's not even a smartphone. In fact, I've got a plain cell phone makes me a Luddite. 25 years ago, if we talked about the phones we'd be having, there's nothing involved in this system that hits a piece of equipment designed more than 10 years ago. In our energy system, we routinely accept the fact that we drive cars built on chassis built in the 1970s. We use light bulbs that actually Thomas Alva Edison would be able to recognize and ship them from power plants, in some cases built when Calvin Coolidge was president of the United States. We need to turn capital stocks in the energy sector over much, much faster. That will actually be good economic news. The rapid change in the telecommunications industry was good for the economy. A similar transformation will be good in the energy economy and what we need to do. To give you an example of what we could do right now, in Argentina, one-third of the vehicles burn natural gas. We have lots of natural gas here in the United States, as T. Boone Pickens likes to point out to us. If we're worried about energy security, Within two years, Detroit could be cranking out millions of natural gas-powered vehicles, and we would be consuming considerable less carbon dioxide. We got lots of options if we start moving like it's a the, crisis. Uh, uh, Dave, the technology point is, is a good point. I heard Jeff Immelt make the comment, and here's a man who, at General Electric who's in both the healthcare business and the energy business. He said that technology has turned over eight times uh, in the time he's been at General Electric in the healthcare business, but has barely moved at all in the energy business. Why is that? Well, I, 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 first of all, the, the, uh, the high-tech business, the, the change is a lot more rapid. The phones have evolved. Computing systems have evolved. And automobiles, for example, are a lot more electrified today than they were just a few years ago. But they're still basically driven by liquid fuels today, and that's, that's the challenge we face. I'd like to come back, though, to the point about natural gas in automobiles. It can be done. Uh, Argentina is starting to see its gas production go down. So I don't know where they go next with, with gas in Argentina. I, I would argue that in the U.S. it's the wrong thing to do with natural gas. We would be much better if that natural gas was a substitute for coal in, in power generation, which would get five times as much carbon out of our system 
than putting it in automobiles, which are much better off transitioning to hybrids and electrification. But even doing that, even using natural gas uh, to power the power industry, moving uh, automobiles to electric, you still can't see us getting more than a 25% reduction in uh, greenhouse gases by 2050. I, I, no, no, I 20, yeah, by 2050. That's 2050. right. I really think that's... Now, that, I, I, I hope I'm wrong about it. But I'm just looking at capital stock turnover. Well, let me just just one second, Carl, because I want to finish on the technology point. Some people do say, why doesn't the oil industry invest more of its earnings, substantial earnings, in technology to help speed up that uh, turnover of the capital stock and the uh, development of new technologies? Well, there's a capacity issue, but I I, I mean, we are investing in new technology. Uh, It's a technology-intensive business. I gave some examples in my remarks. I didn't talk about geothermal, which we're investing, and I didn't talk about the sophisticated deployment of other technology that's, invested, that's been in, uh, invented, such as solar and uh, fuel cells, and the sophisticated control systems that we badly need to optimize the climate control in buildings like this. Carl. Well, let me try to respond by the reality of this goal. Let me begin with your 20 to 25 percent. That is roughly 50% of current carbon emissions from the power sector. California, relative to the rest of the country, between 1973 and 2003, reduced its electrical consumption by 50% by doing some very, very modest policy, policy steps. If the rest of the country just caught up to California as fast as California improved its electrical efficiency over the last 30 years, that one step alone, without touching renewables, without touching transportation, without touching industrial processes, would meet what Mr. O'Reilly thinks is the most we can do. I don't think that's the American spirit. I think the American spirit is to say, we can do this much faster. And I want to give an example in the energy sector of rapid turnover of technology, your oil fields don't look anything like oil fields did 30 years ago. You have done a phenomenal job of rapidly changing the technology that you use to drill for oil and gas and to find it. You're not using equipment to find oil that was designed 70 years ago. The problem is not the way we produce fossil fuels. It's in the technologies we use to burn fossil fuels because, frankly, the government has regulated the energy sector to make it sluggish, to make it non-innovative, to keep it from moving forward. Because back in the 1920s, that kind of made sense. And we still really have an energy infrastructure, a policy structure that goes back to the 1920s. This is the 21st century. We can move much faster than we've ever moved before. Well, if you can get the government to move faster, good luck. Uh, It would uh, help if you would get out of the way. Well, uh, so so we've got you know we've got government motors. So what want government utility companies now? Is that next? No, 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 no. I do not want the government taking over the public utilities. You want them out of the way, right? I want the government to say to the public utilities, if somebody offers you low-carbon electricity, you have to take it before you buy high-carbon electricity because you, Southern Company, have a monopoly and you don't want to buy from an outsider. 
I want the government to say to service station owners, you know something? Let's give consumers a choice. Let's have the option of buying natural gas. We actually probably have a lot of natural gas in this country. I don't know about Argentina. I'm convinced that, and I agree with you. I want to be clear. I think the highest priority is replacing coal with natural gas. And I think the highest priority in the case of the automotive fleet is improving its efficiency, not changing its fuel source. So I agree with you about the order. I just think we can do these things a lot faster than you can. Well, I, I, then I'm glad we agree on that point because there's no question in my mind that replacing coal is one of the speediest ways to get there. But you've got a coal lobby to de defend against who are getting free handouts in this new crazy bill okay. that uh, is in Washington, Wait, right? Wait, be careful what you ask for. I'm going to fly to Washington with you. We're going to lobby on that topic. Are you going to join me? All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So let me, let me ask you, I mean, the reason, that these, the reason these things become political issues is not simply because of special interest lobbying in Washington, but also because of concern about cost. Uh, we've been talking about what can be done by 2050. I, I think both of you would agree we can get to any number by 2050, and the question is, uh, at what cost? And I'd like both of you to talk about what are the costs to the average American of, uh, of, a, of achieving uh, a, a climate goal like 80% uh, reduction by 2050. Uh, Dave O'Reilly, you first. Well, I, I mean, nobody, it's almost an unknowable number at the moment. I've seen all sorts of estimates. You know, in the next 10 years, people talk about a, a, up to a trillion dollars by 2020, but, and, and beyond that, after, after that. But no, nobody knows what the, the, the benefit side is, and it's very difficult to quantify. So I've seen a wide range of studies. But I, so I, I, think, but I think the question is... is clearly that we have to address the cost issue, and it needs to be understood. And that's one of the transparency issues that I'm bothered by when we talk about things like cap and trade. Nobody really, it would be much cleaner if there was a transparent cost on carbon that one could see. A tax. Well, effectively, but nobody wants to talk about a tax. But, well, but, are, call but they don't fee. want to talk call about it. Call it a fee. Call it a fee. Well, okay. Call well, it they, a fee. A fee, a tax. But why, what's, what's wrong with that argument? I mean, transparency is surely a good thing. People ought to see what the cost of this is. Why not do it through the front door with a tax than try and talk about cap and trade that nobody really understands? Well, my organization's position is we're in favor of a carbon fee and we're in favor of cap and auction, and we don't like the giveaways that are in the pending legislation. Do you want and to shake like hands again on that? No, I think, I we're... think, I think and <laughs> we did, and we're going to go lobby on this. I mean, this is, we're going to, I think we'll get meetings with senators that we might not otherwise get. So will I. I think Senator Brownback might meet yes. with you, but I don't think he'd meet with me. You, well, me. You'll be able to get to see the Texas senators. You'll be able to get to see the, uh, uh, the New York dreams. senators. It'll in your dreams. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yes, yes, you're right. But let me talk about cost for a second. I don't think anybody can quantify it. I agree with you. But I think there's a strategy here. We tend to think about fuel costs. What we ought to be thinking about is energy bills. That's what we pay. You don't really care what the number is next to a kilowatt hour on your PG&E bill. What you really care about is how much it costs you to fill your gas tank. If we go after high productivity solutions, and if we bring down the amount of fuel that people need to use to get to work or to heat their homes or to light their light bulbs, and we do that first, 
then even if the price of fuel goes up, and it may well as the result of the kind of investments we're talking about, you won't care. How many people here know the price of molybdenum this morning? Anybody know the price? No. You all use it. You've all got some probably on your person. But you don't care about the price because you don't use very much. The reason the price of oil creeps into the headlines is we use so much of it. And we waste so much of it, which is not your fault. Uh, it's General Motors' fault. Uh, and I do think that we can, have a, we can have a trajectory in which the American people will not be spending a larger portion of their household income on energy. And every year, the energy they use will get cleaner. And every year, the equipment they use will improve its performance. And every year, their houses will be more comfortable. And we have proof of this. This is not just an abstract theory. Here in California, the price of electricity has gone up over the last 30 years relative to other countries because we ban cheap sources like coal. Guess what's happened relative to the rest of the country to the average household utility bill in California? It's come down. Californians spend okay, let's less. Let, let's okay. let Mr. O'Reilly respond. Well, I, I, I certainly agree with those stats on California. I, I don't doubt them at all. But let me tell you what's also happened. The heavy industrial work and manufacturing, a lot of that has moved out of the state. We are a post-industrial society. It's moved out of the state or out of the country. And somewhere in the world, somebody is producing that stuff that we used to produce here and, gener and, and, and using up the energy to do it. So it's not, it's not, it's not a simple... You just can't draw a circle around the state of California and, and uh, draw that conclusion without looking at the total lobe. And if we're talking about carbon emissions, we really need to look at the total lobe. So I agree with what you're saying. I'm not disputing we can't do much more we can. And I do agree with you that it's a demand side issue. The demand, we have to be much more efficient on the demand side. And if we are, then I think I would have a lot more confidence about the future and I would also feel better about energy security. Gentlemen, uh, we've been talking about what should happen. I wonder, go right ahead. I hope somebody's too much capturing agreement, all of too this much on, agreement. on photographs. Uh, I told you it wasn't a smackdown. Um, we, we've been talking about what should happen. Can we turn for just a moment to what is likely to happen? Both of you are very savvy observers of uh, our government in Washington. I get the sense that the pressure for uh, climate change legislation has slowed down a little bit, that the Obama administration has put health care uh, ahead of climate change, and that there's probably a limit to how much they can get done in the first administration anyway. Uh, is what you want to happen going to happen, Carl Pope? Well, the interesting thing is that, I mean, I think Congress doesn't get it. I mean, I think if you look at the last eight years, from my perspective, and yours is probably slightly different, uh, the first thing that happened was the American people got it, and states and localities started to get it. And you could have conversations with the Republican caucus in the Idaho legislature that you couldn't have with anybody in Washington, D.C., or anybody in the White House. Now I think we've added the White House to the list of people who get it, who understand the need for a green energy recovery, you understand the need to move America rapidly and transformationally forward into a clean energy future for both economic and national security and climate health reasons. But I still don't think Congress gets it. I think Congress still thinks that the politics of energy 
is about the politics of regional competition instead about the politics of the national interest. And we need to make Congress view this as a national problem or actually the things that we might both want to have happen if they require legislation will not come to pass fast enough. I, I, I think the, the, uh, the issue, I, I think where the, where the American people are going to have a challenge is if whatever system is developed is not transparent. And looking at the legislation that has been passing, that's in the House at the moment, it, it is very complex. It is unnecessarily complex. And when people see complexity, and they look at what happened in the financial systems with all of the complexities that developed there, I think they get distrustful. And somehow this has to be a system that people understand. They understand the benefits of it. I think the president is going to have to talk in terms of energy security and show leadership here. I think he's been backed away a little bit from it at the moment to let the Congress try to do its work. But ultimately, it's going to be his job to sell a program to the American people, and I think it will have to be simple and relatively explainable for them to, to buy into it. Uh, so this is the Climate One conversation at the Commonwealth Club. You've been listening to uh, Dave O'Reilly, the CEO of Chevron, Carl Pope, the executive director of the Sierra Club. Uh, and uh, Mr. O'Reilly, I need to ask you, there are a fair number of people in the audience here who are interested in the situation in uh, uh, Ecuador. Uh, as I understand it, the problems in Ecuador result from investments made there by uh, uh, Texaco uh, uh, a decade or more ago that have had some uh, horrible consequences for the people living there. I wonder if you could uh, 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 respond to how the company is dealing with that. Well, uh, a little bit of his, this is not a one-sentence answer. Can, can we, we don't, we really don't want this to be consumed by the past. We're trying to look to the future, but as quickly well, as you can do it. Okay, well, the past is that Texaco was a minority partner in a joint venture from 72 to 92, it was, it was nationalized out as part of the exit. They agreed to clean up the parts of the oil development that were no longer needed by Petro-Ecuador, the national oil company. It was cleaned to EPA and international standards, validated by the government, and it was certified as being complete, signed off by the government. So Texaco left in the 90s. Trial lawyers looking for deep pockets, lawsuit, and, and uh, you, you get the picture. And now we, we, are, we are being held hostage, and so, or they're trying to hold us hostage through, uh, through uh, uh, false claims and, uh, and, 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 and trying to invalidate a, an objective exit that was made at the time. So I, uh, all I can say is that we're, we're, we're in a court case. I can't comment on all the details. No decision has been made yet by the court but I'm not optimistic. Uh, Carl Pope, I guess this gets to your uh, two points uh, at the end of your opening comments. Yes, I think it does, and I think it, it illustrates the reality that you've had for decades technologically sophisticated, well-financed, powerful international oil companies operating in parts of the world where governments lacked transparency, lacked capacity, in some cases lacked fundamental legitimacy. And we've never developed a, a system in which the benefits of that potential technological sophistication, the benefits of that financial capacity, actually 
are made applicable on the site. I'm going to give an example from the U.S. My first encounter, actually, which. But please, but okay. we, we, you know, we, we, All right. please be very I'll stop. quick. Very, uh, let, let me just, can I just comment on this for a minute? Over the life of these fields, the government of Ecuador to date has made $75 billion. Texaco made $490 million, a fraction of that during the, all those years it was there. And I agree that where did the money go to? Why did that $75 billion or some of it not go back to the, to the people who have legitimate concerns, have inadequate water, health care, and the things that we take for granted in the developed world? Uh, for, for benefit of the people who didn't see it, there were a number of people in the audience who stood up with T-shirts on. Could one of you stand up again so I can read your T-shirt for those who can't see? Uh, I, I'm not looking for applause. Chevron's $27 billion secret in Ecuador. Um, it's not a right, secret. It's not a secret. It's not. Uh, okay, let's, uh, let's move on to other questions from the audience. Uh, uh, Dave O'Reilly, what what can Chevron do to be a leader in the effort for a carbon-smart economy today? Uh, well, the very first thing than... is to lead the efficiency charge. And our own company, we are 30% uh, more efficient than we were 15 years ago. So internally, we're becoming more and more efficient in how we use. And, and Carl made the, how we use energy. And Carl made the point that the, the way we operate today is getting better and better thanks to technology that, uh, that was made earlier. I think he's, he's absolutely right. And also, we are promoting energy efficiency through our energy uh, solutions company, which does a great job in this area. And, you, and you'll see a lot of our advertising for efficiency. I, I think that energy efficiency has the best chance of making the biggest difference in the near term. Uh, Carl, what do you think Chevron should be doing that they aren't doing? Well, I think, first of all, Chevron's voice to say we can get this done faster would be incredibly important, and I'm glad to have that voice say the way we get it done faster is by doing efficiency first, because I agree with that. Second, I think that Chevron has to come to the table with the local communities where its operations have been involved in leaving behind enormous environmental and community harm. I just think... And we don't have to... We don't have to do this in a way that is talking about, okay, what should you have done 20 years ago? If, if, if I spill my milk, and I didn't mean to, I still have to clean it up. And I understand that it's not efficient for Chevron and Texaco to fight it out in a court. That's why I suggested that all of the oil companies set aside 10% of their profits for the next 10 years to provide a fund from which we can clean up the world which the oil we have all used has left behind. And I promised we would come back to this. Do you have a response to that proposal? Well, uh, my, my, response, my, my, response, well, my response is this. Uh, look, if you set up a fund, everyone's going to pay for it because there is only a, 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 a long-term cost of capital return on any business, and ultimately the customers pay. So what... What I think you're saying is that we all need to pay for it, ultimately. Those of us that use it need to pay for it. And that I agree that those of us use it so, ultimately pay so, for it, so, so yes, a, I do. A, a tax on every use? If, if, uh, if you can get the government to ever increase taxes other than uh, on a few of us, I agree with you. Uh, Car Carl Pope, someone, someone is uh, uh, raising questions about your cell phone analogy, pointing out that it takes years, maybe even decades, to permit a power plant uh, the analogy of the phone communication infrastructure is not a, a good analogy. How do you get the infrastructure changed 
quickly enough to make the transition you're talking about in 20 years? Well, first thing you do is we have a huge number of natural gas power plants that are sitting idle while we use coal plants full tilt. We could tomorrow, with a literal flick of the switch, chop 275 million metric tons out of the U.S.'s annual emissions by simply changing the order in which we dispatch power plants and dispatching gas before we dispatch oil. It does not take 10 years to insulate my windows. Efficiency can be done very quickly. And yes, there are some parts of the process that will take longer. The auto fleet turns over slow. That'll be one of the last things to be modernized. The last clunker on the road will probably be one of the last relics of the energy economy of the 20th century. But if we start doing it all now, as we did in World War II, we can get it all done by 2050. Well, I think the, in the case of the cars, the customers have to buy, Alan, they, and, and that's the issue here. We just don't have the customers, you know, vote with their wallets. Uh, people have to be provided the right incentives uh, to to take the actions that they need to take on their homes. I'm not saying that these things can't happen. Our view is that it's just going to take longer. It's human nature. It's economics. It's cost and benefit. Another question, a uh, person says, it seems to me Chevron should set revenue goals for revenue from non-petroleum or renewable-based energy sources. Tell us what percentage of your revenue today comes from renewables and where you think that'll be in, say, 2050, since that's the year Well, we're it, today, I, I, it's about 2% of the energy we produce. That's the best way to look at it, uh, the, the renewables. And, that, and, and by the way, it's that's almost all geothermal. And we are the biggest geothermal producer in the world. So that tells you a little bit about the scale challenge that we face. So, yes, these, these, these will grow, but it's going to take time. Where can you get in 2050, Chevron as a company? Uh, what are your I, goals? Well, uh, we, don't, we don't have a goal for anything in 2050. To be, uh, to be, other than, we'll be, other than we'll be a successful energy company like we have been for 130 years. And we've made that transition. So we do have a goal to be to be an energy provider, but it depends on the development of technology. We, we couldn't have dreamed... What's your prediction? 10 or 15% perhaps, but I doubt if it'll be much more than that. 10 or 15% renewables, the rest carbon-based fuels. The rest, other fuels. Carl. Well, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's all carbon. One of the things we haven't talked about here is nuclear power, which is 20% of our, 20% of our uh, electricity and... Non-carbon, it has other problems, but it's an issue that we've got to face up to. Uh, Carl, nuclear energy, why, why isn't that the... That's, well, uh, it certainly has scale. I, uh, it doesn't hurt... Uh, I, uh, I, uh, I await the moment when the first executive, and I doubt you'll be the first executive, walks into my office and says, I'm willing to build a nuclear power plant with my own investors' money. I just don't think the nuclear industry has learned how to build affordable power plants. And but renewables are, are subsidized oh, as well. The, 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 I mean, the, the, the uh, wind is subsidized, is, Yeah, but the ratio, is is, the ratio is grotesque. With a nuclear power plant, you're now getting, I think that the industry has said it wants 90% federal loan guarantees. 90%. Now, I think to respond to Mr. O'Reilly's numbers, the world will have room in 2050 for a very small company, 90% of whose energy comes from fossils. The world will not have room or tolerance in 2050 for a big energy company. So if Chevron wants to be successful, 
I think Chevron's going to need to change those numbers. But, but let me ask you a question. Would you agree that if somebody came in and was willing to build a nuclear plant without subsidy that you would support it? I would think it was a very interesting experiment. Yeah, I would say let's give it a try. Thank you. Uh, some, I believe this is public inf information. Someone in the audience wants both of you to tell us what your annual salary is. Uh, and, and this is interesting. What percentage that figure comprises of your annual budget? Who, who would like to go first? My annual salary is somewhere in the neighborhood of 200000 and that is since our budget is $80 million, I guess that's... Somebody do that math do for me. Math uh, I can't do that math, but it's, it's a $200,000 salary against an $80 it's million dollar budget. We've got about 450 employees. My right. annual salary is, uh, is $1.75 million. Million? Million. I've got your questions here. You can, uh, now, that's and excluding bonus. Excluding bonus, and the rest depends on how the company performs in stock, but... But say last year. No, nominally 14 million. 14 million last year. Uh, Mr. O'Reilly, I'm not going to ask you to make the calculation of what percentage of your, your what is it, 250 it's, billion in revenue? It's minute yeah. compared to the revenue. Uh, what efforts has Chevron made, if any, to educate senators and representatives uh, uh, about global warming, especially the laggards? We have, uh, well, about, about three years ago, we put together a. Um, a set of seven principles that we believe uh, legislators and regulators ought to consider in developing legislation around global climate change. And actually, those seven principles have worked very effectively in California, where we work collaboratively with the state to develop the, cl the climate change legislation and regulations that are being developed here in California and in some other states. We would, of course, like to see a national program which kind of levels the playing field for all states. And uh, the, the, uh, the, so we've communicated these principles. They're engaged, you know, uh, transparency is one, energy security, uh, new technology, uh, kind of, and I could go on. But they basically, I think, are very effective. They're broad-based, and legislation and regulations that meet uh, many of those uh, 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 principles, I think, uh, are acceptable if, if, if they honor those principles. And the state of California, I think, has done the most in this area, from what I can tell. It's much more complicated getting things done in Washington because you have 50 states that are coming from different directions. But at least in California, we've got a clearer focal point. Carl? Well, I think that what we really, what would be very, very important is if important and powerful voices in the fossil fuel sector of the energy industry were to say, we don't just acknowledge that global warming is a problem, we acknowledge the scientific warning we're getting, and the United States has to do this on time. And we're willing to do our part, and we want Congress to make it possible for us to do our part, and I believe Congress will have to help you. I don't believe you can do it on your own. But I believe that for the energy sector to say we're ready to do it fast, if we get the right rules of the road, if we get rules of the road that enable us to turn over our capital stocks fast, I think that could be an incredibly powerful step forward. It has not yet happened. 
since we're talking about influencing government, can both of you, uh, there were some questions asking, both of you talk about the size of your lobbying efforts in Washington. How much money do you spend in a year on political campaigns, lobbying, et cetera? Uh, neither of you are midgets in that regard. Yeah, I, I just don't have the number at my fingertips. We have about 20 people in our Washington office, though. I, so that's the sort of the size of our organization, but I just don't have the numbers. Carl? Uh, we spend on, uh, we spend about four and a half million dollars a year on our electoral work. We spend about an equivalent amount on lobbying Congress and the state legislatures. And we have probably 40 people in Washington, not all of whom are lobbyists. We have about 40 people in Washington. So this isn't a David and Goliath story. He may, he may not know his budget, but I've seen some figures that suggest that it's when you count the trade association, much, much larger than mine, but I'm not complaining about the David and Goliath quality. Okay. Carl, uh, one of the, someone in the audience asks, how much energy do you have to invest to build a new transportation fleet and a new power infrastructure, and how does this compare to the amount of energy savings uh, you're going to get uh, once you've adopted the new technology? It obviously depends on the technology, and we want to do this smart, and we don't always. I think another thing Mr. O'Reilly and I may agree about is that we went a little bit overboard on corn ethanol, and we made a lot of investments that didn't actually pay off. On the other hand, uh, it's very difficult for me to believe that putting smart meters on our homes isn't going to have a payoff in energy terms that's enormous compared to the cost. So we have to do this smart, and... That requires good public policy, which right now at the national level is in short supply. Dave? I think it's, un it's unknowable. Uh, uh, the costs are unknowable, but the, uh, the smart meter program, for example, these are, th there, there are steps you can take that are actually pretty darn economic, uh, particularly in the, uh, the low-hanging fruit area. And I agree that uh, metering and measuring energy and controlling energy efficiency and behavior, you know, when I drove, you know, the, in the freeway, people are belting along at 75 miles an hour, just slowing down a little bit and inflating tires, which President Obama got criticized for during the campaign. That saves five or six or seven percent uh, of your fuel right there. Uh, production of wind energy, uh, according to one question, is doubling every two years. Wind is the only renewable approaching coal and energy in price. Uh, uh, it looks like we're getting close to the point where you can do wind without, subs uh, without heavy subsidy. Why isn't Chevron heavily invested in wind? Well, we, we don't need to invest in wind. It's very simple. Uh, there's, there's, there, there's, we, there's so much wind. I mean, I, I think the, we're going to get there on wind. Wind is definitely coming at a fast speed, and we don't see... But why don't you need to be part of that? Because we're not really in the electricity business. We're in the fuels business, not the electricity business. Carl? Well, I don't think we have the capital to get into the wind business. <laughs> All right. Uh, Dave O'Reilly, uh, uh, to, uh, to stop at doubled CO2, we must never use 70% of proven resources of oil and coal. What does that fact mean to your bottom line? I think this gets to a question that a lot of people have, which is can someone in your position um, uh, be in a position to uh, uh, advocate dramatic reductions in the use of carbon-based fuels? Well, I think the issue is, is not just advocating 
dramatic reductions, but advocating reductions that are realistic and economic and achievable. And that, to me, that, that's, I think, where Carl and I differ here. Uh, he, he thinks it can be done faster. I just think that it's going to take uh, longer. Uh, for both speakers, uh, Carl, many of the actions proposed today were proposed in the 70s during President Carter's administration. Uh, what would the U.S. be like if they had been adopted then? <laughs> Uh, Louisiana would be bigger. Uh, the federal deficit would be dramatically smaller. The asthma rate would be smaller. If we'd really kept at it after Carter, we might have had one war in Iraq, but we wouldn't have had the second one. And we would have another 10 years to solve the climate crisis. We lost a solid decade by going off course in 1980. Uh, got a lot of interesting questions here to sort through, and we're running out of time. But uh, let me ask you both. If Congress doesn't act on climate change, what is the EPA uh, obligated to do under the Clean Air Act? Well, I think the courts have found that, uh, that, uh, that the, uh, the precursors of climate change are uh, are regulatable. Regula they can be regulated. So basically, the EPA will be charged with uh, regulating. And I think in this case, uh, I think a sensible legislation is is uh, what we need. Well, let's begin with, and this is not involving particularly oil. It mainly involves coal. Uh, because we just regulated the consumption of oil. We just did what we needed to do between now and 2016, thanks to the state of California and the Obama administration. We actually have put the auto industry on the right pathway for the next seven years, which is a good chunk of work. In the case of coal, coal ash should be regulated as a hazardous waste. For God's sake, it is a hazardous waste. Currently, it's regulated like kitchen scraps. That's a joke. Power plants shouldn't be able to put out mercury without being regulated. Nobody else in the economy is allowed to do this. You shouldn't be able to dig a mine and dump all of the waste into a stream. Mr. O'Reilly would go to jail in this country if Chevron did that. Any coal company can get a permit to do it. EPA should stop that. And finally, a power plant built in the Calvin Coolidge era ought to be cleaned up. That's common sense, and that's what the Supreme Court said the, that EPA should do. We actually think it should be done very quickly, and if it's not done through legislation, it ought to be done by regulation. Uh, there's a question here for me. It says, Alan Murray, how many questions about Ecuador have been asked tonight, and can you tally them and, and announce? And I've been going through these very fast. I don't think I can give you an exact tally, uh, but I think it is about 13. Um, uh, Question for both of you. How should peak oil impact discussion and transition timeline in the development of an optimal and sustainable economic and environmental energy portfolio? Peak oil. Um, we have an issue coming in the coming decades, and it's why it is so important to become more efficient in how we use oil. Uh, it's, it's not so much that there is not sufficient oil in the ground around the world, but there is inadequate and likely to be inadequate investment in the time needed 
to make it available when the demand grows. We, we are in a world where we're part of the golden billion. We live good lives. There are million, billions of people out there that are striving to improve their quality of life, to move from a subsistence type of existence. And as they move up, they, they want to live our lifestyle. They want, to, they want to have transportation. They want to have heating and cooling and, and uh, adequate water and health care. That's going to put demands on the energy system around the world. So my, I think this is a concern not so much about the state of the natural resource, but the supply relative to the demand. So this is a window of opportunity. We have a slower economy. Demand has actually dropped in the last few years. We have a window of opportunity to get our policies right, and I hope we take advantage of it. Uh, I, I wanna, uh, a couple of questions have asked us to go back to the issue of a carbon tax. Uh, which both of you agreed was a more transparent way of getting at the problem. Um, is that something, Dave O'Reilly, that you uh, are sincerely pushing for, or is it simply an effort to head off the, uh, the climate change discussion, I mean the cap-and-trade no, discussion? No, it, it, look, we, we, uh, we tried to work with Congress on a cap-and-trade. We effectively worked with the state of California on a cap-and-trade. And, and a lower carbon fuel standard. So we were able to work that out, but the complexity of what we see in Congress with the cap and trade system, the concern about transparency is fast le leading us to some form of a carbon fee which is visible, transparable, uh, transparent, and gets the right behavior, and it's predictable. So all how, those how things- How big would that need to be? Well, people talk about $20 a ton as a start. And, and I, I mean, it, that's probably where it needs to start. But I think the reality is that most people projected is going to have to go up from there. But if it's, if it's projected and people know it's coming, they can plan for it when they buy their next automobile or they remodel their home or whatever it is over a period of time. How often do CEOs go to Washington and say, tax me, please? Well, we, we have been talking openly about it. So I, I, I think this is something that is a better alternative. Uh, but unfortunately, there is no or limited political will in Washington to do it. And perhaps uh, we can ask the Sierra Club to comment on that. Carl? Well, I think first, cap and auction, which is what, and, and carbon tax actually work the same way. In one case, you set the price, and then you see if you need to adjust the price to get the quantity. In the other case, you adjust the quantity, and then the market sets the price. What Congress has done in the House is something quite different and quite messed up. And when we get over to the Senate, we need to try to get it much clearer, much more transparent, much simpler. And I think that if actually, if you and I can talk later privately, the press will ask us about it, but I'm not going to plan my lobbying strategy at a press conference. Uh, but I am going to actively pursue a lobbying strategy. Because one of the things that happened in the House, and I want to acknowledge this, is the underlying, one of the underlying financial transactions that happened is the coal industry sent oil and gas its share of the dinner bill. Uh, that's what really happened in the House Commerce Committee because of the composition of that committee. So I actually think there is a possibility, we'll see, of enlisting Mr. O'Reilly and his colleagues on the side of the angels for a change to try to get a better outcome in the Senate. You're identifying yourself as the angels in this case. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, sure. Okay, uh, we're just about out of time here. Uh, the last question picks up on what you were just saying. Someone, some, someone, maybe we can, 
Uh, we're really running out of time. Maybe we can get to that in the press conference. Uh, will you both agree, this is a question from the audience, will you both agree to identify all your points of agreement and to then publicly support the policies that are prescribed by those points of agreement that you've reached tonight? Uh, I think a, I, I can't. Kind of a yes or no. You mean following this meeting? Is that After this meeting, yeah, correct. Let's sit down and talk. Yeah, I'll be glad to write down. I will. I'll be glad to write down the things that I think we've agreed on. I'll be glad to be prompted by the tape. But I also want to suggest and ask you, if in addition to sitting down and talking with me, I think it would be a very positive step if Chevron would do a forum like this in some of the communities where you operate, so that. Local people can ask you the same kind of questions, and I'm going to suggest you start right across we, the bay in Richmond. We, we, it, sounds like, okay. it sounds like a fair number of people from Richmond made it here. You know, I can't commit to personally being at every forum, but I certainly think we can have forums in our community. We already do have forums in our community, and I, we can certainly take that... Uh, uh, thank you. We've, we're out of time. Uh, we've been discussing Americans' energy, energy future with Dave O'Reilly, chairman and CEO of Chevron, Carl Pope, executive director of the Sierra Club. They met here for the first time. I think we should give them both a big round of applause for being willing to be here tonight. Thank you. Thank you all very much. <laughs>